if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Isaiah chapter 57. I'm going to read from verse 14 and then I'm going to pray for us. That's Isaiah 57, 14. This is God speaking to us. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever nor will I always be angry, but the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning so much. Our hearts have been so stirred by singing your praise. And by hearing from your servant Barnabas, Lord, we're rejoicing as we consider in the life of Barnabas and Radika the power of the gospel, your power. Lord, this morning we, we want to ask you for a miracle. We want you to do something that that we, we can't do to reveal yourself to us and to make us more like Jesus, to change us. We pray that, that you do it by the power of your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for many of you guys who know me, uh, I still currently work as a physiotherapist and I used to previously, uh, every morning, I commute uh, from the northern suburbs on the train down into St. Vincent's Hospital. That's where I used to work. I worked there for uh, four years, the previous four years. And I grew up in Dapto. You know, in Dapto, not a lot happens in Dapto. And, uh, you know, going to Sydney for me as a Daptoidian... Big deal, big deal, exciting deal. And uh, I, re- I, I still remember the first time I caught the, the Northern Suburbs line uh, from, at the time, I think I was living in Artarman, uh down along the Northern Suburbs line over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. 
And you know what? You know, the train is full of guys in suits. You know, they got the paper up there reading, but I'm pressed against the glass. You know, I'm looking, wow, it's amazing. Like the city opera house and, you know, little boats and things. I was always on the top story. You know, you got that decision up or down every time you get on the train. I was up every time because I wanted to see the view. And I would be so excited every time, pressed up against the glass, my face, you know, looking. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. But as the years went by and as... Every morning I'd find myself on the train slowly, slowly, slowly. I'd change until as the years had passed, I'd find myself looking down on my iPad. I wouldn't even look up. It's my morning commute. And something that once was so precious to me, so exciting, so beautiful, it's just familiar. Overly familiar. It wouldn't excite me in the same way anymore. And the reason why I want to bring that up this morning is that sometimes we can repeat things so often that we can just forget. We can grow overly familiar with the privilege, with the beauty with the scandal of what we're saying. And this morning, in particular, I want to draw our attention to some specific words. The words, God is with me. I mean, we say that so repeatedly. Oh, God bless you. God be with you. Oh, yeah, God's with me. Don't we say that all the time? Like it's, like it's just nothing. Like it's just, yeah, well, you know, God's with me. Of course he's with me. You know, it's, I've grown up my whole life knowing that, that God is with me. And how easily do we just let those words kind of roll off our tongues in kind of a no big deal way? And this, this morning, I want us to pause And I want us to remember, I want us to think about what we're really saying. This morning, the final message, uh, we've looked at, behold your God in His holiness. We've looked at, behold your God at the cross. And and I really want us to pause and look at, behold your God in His presence. And really... We're going to have two points, simple points uh, this morning. I want us to see with fresh eyes the one who is with us. And I want our response to be worship, to worship him, to love him more, to, to just be transfixed by his beauty. That's, that's what I want for us. So let's, let's, let's dive into point one, and that is God eternal. Uh, You know, the passage uh, that I read just before, it's from uh, the book of Isaiah, obviously. And I just want to paint a little bit of context because I think it will help us to understand. The book of Isaiah is written by uh, Isaiah, this prophet who was living in the southern kingdom, Judah, in the 8th century uh, BC. That's uh, around 800 years before Christ. And he was called by God to prophesy to the people of God. And his message was twofold. It was one of judgment and yet mercy at the same time. And the first half of the book 
he really prophesies about this coming destruction on the, the northern kingdom of Israel, something that actually happened in his lifetime at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. The, the northern kingdom was wiped out. And the second half of the book, he actually long-term prophesies about events that would happen hundreds of years after his time. He prophesies in the second half of the book uh, about the Babylonians coming down to destroy the southern kingdom and Jerusalem, something that would happen in, in 586-587 BC. And he prophesies that the Babylonians would come and they'd take people into exile, and then eventually that, that the Babylonians, or the Persians rather, would restore them back to, back to God's land and people. And our passage uh, comes at the back end of the book where Isaiah is prophesying into the future and he's seeing the people of God having already returned from Babylon and waiting for God's promised new world. That's the context. They're back already from the exile and, and they're waiting for God's promise of this restored kingdom. Uh, Barry Webb, who's a Bible scholar, writes the following about it. He says, It was a time of high expectations and immense difficulties. Uh, there was tension between the returnees and those, including foreigners, who'd been living in the area during their absence. There were frustrations inevitably associated with limited self-rule. The Judea to which they had returned had been incorporated into the Persian Empire. So they were home, but still not their own masters. Their numbers and resources were limited. And neighboring groups still viewed them with suspicion or outright hostility. In these circumstances, the challenges involved in establishing a secure and viable community were almost overwhelming. You see, the Israelites, well, some of them were back, but others were scattered. Some were living at this time in, in Babylonia, some in Egypt, some elsewhere. And prophets had spoken about this kind of glorious new age that was coming. How God was to bless the nations through them and to bring in this kind of new world order. And they were home, but home was still Persian territory. And they still had kind of a limited self-rule. And they had this really hostile reception from their new neighbors, many of whom actually were living in their neighborhood. And they were experiencing this tension between the promises of God in the now and the yet to come, the not yet. And that's where we read our passage, verse 14 of chapter 57. As I prophesize, and he says, It shall be said on that day, Build up, build up. Prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. It's the language of highway building. Build up. Build this solid foundation. Smooth over all the potholes. Remove every obstacle. Well, what's this highway to? What's this road to? Well, it's not a road back from Babylon. They've already come back. Uh, John Oswald uh, describes what this road is about uh, in his commentary. He says, The message speaks of making it possible for the people to return to God. Whatever prevents them from coming to Him and taking refuge in Him is to be taken out of the way. The language is that of highway building. 
which appears throughout the book. The roadbed is to be raised up above the surrounding countryside so that it can have adequate foundation under it. All the bumps and potholes are to be removed from it so that nothing can stand in the people's way. That is in their way back to God. That is in their way into God's presence. Well, why is that kind of road needed to come to God anyway? Like, why do we need a highway back to God? Why do we need a way to Him? And to answer that question, we need to pause and look at what our God, Yahweh, is like. And that's exactly where Isaiah takes us in verse 15. Why don't you uh, read again uh, with me, verse 15, the first half. Isaiah writes and he says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Let's, let's go through and look at, at these things that Isaiah says. He says the one who is high and lifted up. The one who is high, that is what he is in and of himself. He is transcendent. God is completely separate, completely different from the created world. He is not made of physical matter and he does not have size or spatial dimensions. Acts 17, Luke writes the following, uh, describing uh, Paul's message at Mars Hill. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need creation for anything. He is completely independent and satisfied in and within himself. You know, uh, I've been thinking about and looking at uh, the universe and the world around us just this week. And did you know the sun is in its diameter 109 times the size of the earth? And did you know that within the sun you could fit 960,000 earths? But did you know that just in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there is a hundred billion stars just like ours? And did you know that if you go to a beach and take a single grain of sand, and that if you cast your mind to think of every single grain of sand on every single beach in the entire world and times it by one million, that would be approximately all the stars in the known universe. A millionfold 
for every single grain of sand on every single beach. And yet we read in Genesis 1.14 that God simply says in perhaps the greatest understatement of all, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And a hundred billion galaxies came to be. He is high. He is transcendent. But more than that, he's lifted up. That's what he is in relation to everything else. He is over all. You know, in Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the land of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God doesn't have size. He doesn't have spatial dimensions and yet he is present in every point of the universe with his whole being. There is not a single point in all time, space, existence where God is not present. You know, I love what Herman Bavinck says about this, the Dutch theologian. He says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. And from those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in your room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart. Hear this. There you meditate. But he is more inward than your heart. Wherever therefore you shall have fled, there he is. There he is. The one who is high and the one who is Lifted up. But more than that, the one who inhabits eternity. You see, God has no beginning, no end or succession of moments in his own being. And he sees all of time equally vividly. In Revelation 1.8, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The one who is and who was and who is yet to come, the Almighty. He says, I'm the A and I'm the Z. I'm the start and I'm the end. I'm the eternal one. Psalm 90 says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. God is eternal and therefore doesn't experience time like we do. You know, recently it's been in the paper about uh, scientists or archaeologists found these stone tools in Kakadu National Park and they estimate that they're 50,000 years old. But for our God, he sees before him the time in which they were made as though it were today. God sees not just 
all things past and present and future, all possible variations as well that could have been but weren't and that could be in the future but won't be. Just imagine this. Imagine to take again that single grain of sand from some beach, some place. God knows right now on that beach, not just every grain of sand that is, as the tide comes in and out and draws a few, as a butterfly lands and collects a single grain and flies off. But he knows every grain of sand since the very beginning and every grain of sand that will ever be on that beach. More than that, he knows every possible change of the grains of sand that could have been that weren't. And that could have been in the future, but will never be. He is high and lifted up. He is the one who inhabits eternity. And Isaiah says in in chapter 46, verse 9, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God declares when things will start and finish. He orders the universe and declares what will happen. But more than that, Isaiah says, He is the one whose name is holy. You know, your name in English, at least, it's just a title. You can pick and choose. Even there's a new craze at the moment where after a significant life event, people are choosing now to rename themselves. In our culture, a name is just a title. But in a Hebrew understanding, your name is your nature. It's your being. And God's nature... God's being is holy. Well, what does it mean that God is holy? We've touched on it a bit um, with Dave in the first message, but we usually think of holiness in kind of a kind of a better than thou kind of way, a kind of a morally pure, at least someone who thinks they are holier than thou. Uh, We think it kind of uh, being about following rules and so so forth. But the Bible paints a different picture of what holiness is. In fact, probably the best way to describe the Bible's picture of holiness is again to imagine the sun. Now the sun in our solar system is completely unique. It stands in the center and nothing in our solar system is like it. Not in size or power or role. In the same way, God is unique. He is set apart. He is completely other. He is eternal. He is transcendent. He is above all. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. But also holiness means something else. It refers to purity. Moral purity, that God is perfectly righteous and perfectly good. You see, if you're good, wickedness makes you mad. It makes you really mad. And if you're good and you're powerful, you want to intervene. 
You know, imagine seeing, for instance, a grandma being beaten by a thief. There's something in you that just wants to just intervene and, 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 and stop that injustice. Now imagine God. God's character burns against evil and injustice just like the sun. And if you get too close to him and you are wicked because his very nature in its goodness It just desires to consume all that is evil. Just like the sun, if you draw too close, you will be consumed. In Exodus 3, 5, it says, Then God said to Moses, Do not come near. Take off your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God like the sun in his holiness. His nature is holy. As we saw in uh, on Saturday morning, it says in Isaiah six and the foundation of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Well, the eternal God is completely transcendent. He is completely above all. He is eternal and holy. And in light of this. I want to allow the absolute scandal of the following promise to take its full effect. That's point one, eternal God. Point two, with us. With us. Read with me verse 15 again. It says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Just imagine the comfort this passage would have been to the returned exiles they're opposed they're suffering they're disappointed they're separated from loved ones they're under the rule of the persians and god promises he will dwell with his people but who in particular with priests with kings With the powerful, with the successful. No, he dwells with the contrite and the lowly in spirit. The contrite, literally, it means crushed, like dust. Those who are crushed by life's burdens and batterings. That's exactly what happened to the people of God on return from exile. 
the lowly, those who are bowed down, those who are of low standing, the humble, those who know their rightful place is at the bottom. You see, God is high and holy, and so those that can dwell with Him are those who know that they don't belong with Him at the top. And the Israelites had come back to be in semi-servitude and were still oppressed, but, but God doesn't, doesn't intend to leave them there crushed and lowly. Look, look what He says in, in verse 15, further down, He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who's contrite and and lowly in spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He promises to dwell with them in order to revive, to bring them back to life, to breathe life into the spirit. Read strength, the liveliness of the humble, to breathe life into their strength, to breathe life into the heart. Read the mind, the will, to breathe life into into the heart, into the mind and will of the crushed. Well, how is this possible? How could a God of that power, that holiness, that purity dwell with man? Well, we see a pointer to the future. Uh, Uh, a, a clue to Calvary in verse 16. Read this. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I had made. God says, I know the living creatures would faint in my presence to be burned up before me. And so my righteous anger is not always going to burn against wickedness. No, I will satisfy it. How did he satisfy this anger? Well, just a few chapters earlier in chapter 53, we read the following. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He promised to send the suffering servant to take his wrath in full. 
And he absorbed the burning rays of God's right anger for our sin on that cross. Like an ant underneath the the focused beam of a magnifying glass. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the full. The result? A highway to God. Beyond anything that the Israelites returned from Babylon could ever have imagined. And so Jesus came and he said this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But what he accomplished on the cross is so much more than simple forgiveness of sins. Now that would leave us not, not as we are, but simply neutral before God. He accomplished the promise of verse 15. The promise of verse 15. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly heart. The high one, the lifted up one, the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, dwells with us, dwells in me, Yet we can say that so flippantly. Dwells in me. Move on. It's our creator. He's our maker. The one who appeared to Moses and parted the Red Sea. The one who formed the earth and filled it with all of its goodness. The one who filled Christ and raised him from the dead dwells in us. We so easily overlook the fact that God dwells with us. God dwells in us. And yet the Bible gives us so many important implications of this. And I wanted to end this message by just pausing and looking at a handful. Four. Firstly, you're joined to Christ. You know, so many of our fears come from the fact that we often believe ourselves to be absolutely alone. In sickness, that we're alone. In conflict, that we're alone. At work, that we're alone. With our finances, that we're alone in a difficult relationship, that we're alone. And yet Paul writes in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
Do you ever read the Gospels and just wonder what it would be like to meet Christ? He dwells in you. I mean, just, just, just pause from looking at me and just, just look down at, at, at your own chest as, as it moves in and out as you breathe. He is in you. He is sustaining you. Hold up your hands just in front of your face and, 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 and look at them. The Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, is at this moment in you, dwelling in you. He dwells in you. You are never alone, not in sickness, not during exams, not during a job interview, not with relationship difficulties. Christ is permanently joined to you. But more than that, Oh, so much more than that. You know, it's, it's so easy in life to feel like a failure. To feel like a failure at school. To feel like a failure as a parent. To feel like a failure in career. To feel like a failure as a Christian. But because of His presence... You have spiritual new life. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you realize that because God dwells in you, You're a new creation. You're a a new person. The old has gone. The new has come. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Paul goes on to write in in chapter 4. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. When? Day by day. Renewing you. Do you realize that with every passing day, God is renewing you from the inside out? Because His Holy Spirit dwells in you. The power of sin is broken. You are freed from bondage. You are a new creation. But more than that, so much more than that, you're also adopted into His family. You know, so much of our, so much of my anxiety is because I often feel insecure. I often feel worried about what people think about me. And so I often feel this pressure to pretend to be a person I'm not. To exaggerate the truth. To make myself seem more impressive, more influential, more wealthy than I am. But hear what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption 
by son, uh, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You've been adopted into God's family. You know, have you ever wondered as you watch TV what it would be like to be a royal? And how people would treat you so differently, you know, if you were Prince Harry or something like that, or William, and you just rocked up, and, and you'd have this, just this sense of security and, and identity. And, but you're adopted into a family far greater. You've been adopted into the family of the King of Kings. Isn't that amazing? All because he dwells in you. But more than that, you have hope for life in the future. You know, it's so easy to fall into fear about the future, to be afraid of what is coming, to be afraid if we'll have enough to live off, to be afraid if we'll ever, in Sydney, own our own home, to be afraid if we'll ever overcome this illness. And listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Isn't that beautiful? The, the, the same Holy Spirit that God breathed into the life of lifeless Adam lives in you. The same spirit that filled Christ to the fullness and raised him up again from the grave lives in you. That though one day you will die and be buried, one day by the same spirit you will be raised back to life from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that change just the way you look at everything, you will live forever enjoying a new creation and worshiping Christ. Well, just like my old morning commute into the city, it's so easy to let the incredible just become overly familiar. I hope that you've been able to see with fresh eyes the amazing scandal that God eternal, the one who is high, the one who is lifted up, the one who is eternal, the one whose name is holy, dwells with us through the gift of His Son. That we are joined to Christ. That we have a spiritual new life. That we've been adopted into His family. That we have hope for life in the future. Well, church, as we close, I just, I just have in my heart, you know, I just believe it's possible to know this intellectually, but to not have tasted it, God's presence with you, with us. You know, Jonathan Edwards, uh, famous American theologian, says there's two ways you can know that honey is sweet. The first is by knowledge of the mind. You could have a hundred different people tell you that it tastes sweet. The second way you can know it is to taste it yourself. To taste something of its sweetness. And Paul writes in Ephesians 1, and he's praying to people that are already Christians. 
And he's describing how he's praying for them. And he says this. He says in Ephesians 1, 18, that he prays that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You know, these guys are already Christians. These guys already know all of these truths. So why is Paul praying? He's praying that they have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And if that's you, you're here this morning as we wind up this series. I just want to end our time just praying for you. Because I believe God is able, God desires to answer that prayer. To open the eyes, not of the mind, but the heart. You experience His tender love for you. Well, church, I trust that you've been able to behold your God in His presence with us this morning. And I just just want us, as we finish this series, we've seen that He's holy. We've seen His care for us at the cross. And I trust we've seen that He's with us. So let's cast our gaze to the one who's present with us and let's pray and, and ask God to help us taste his goodness. Why don't you join with me and bow your heads as we pray to close. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you so much for undeserved kindness. That you, the high and lifted up one, the one who inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, would dwell with us. And that you would dwell with us at the cost of your son. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who hasn't properly tasted the blessing of knowing your presence with them. And I want to pray that you'd open up the eyes of their heart. That they might know the hope to which you've called them. And what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? You are with them. They are joined to you. That they are a new creation in Christ. That they're adopted into your family. And that they have the most beautiful hope of new life in the future with you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.